There is, there, in each of our lives, we have to deal with things that go on two different planes. We deal with the horizontal and we deal with the vertical. The vertical is our relationship with God. And there are going to be decisions we have to make that are, I mean, every decision we make in one way or another is going to affect that relationship. Uh, every choice we make is going to leave a ripple. There is no choice we make that doesn't. Regardless of how little or seemingly inconsequential that choice is, our life are defined. Our lives are defined by choices. Those choices, in essence, reveal to us uh, where we really stand on something and what's really important to us. They reveal to us, in essence, they uh, in, will support us if we're really being truthful, normally with ourselves on these areas. And they also, by the way, convict us or at least stand as testimony against us when we really try to say something, you know, and it doesn't come to, to pass. Uh, if you, you know, for a person to say, God is the most important thing in my life, and then, <clears throat> and then the choices we make really just contradict that, that we choose the things that hate God, we are indifferent to the things that are important to God, we are, uh, in essence, lackadaisical about the things that could draw us closer in a relationship to God, and we're in hot pursuit, on the other hand, of things that aren't, well, then that becomes clear that even though no matter what we say in testimony and verbal testimony, our choices really become evidence of the, of the truth. And unfortunately, because we're such good liars, and I'm not talking just about myself, I believe every one of us are. I, I, I believe that we're all fantastic liars to the one person that gives audience to our lives more than anyone, that's ourselves. And that's why Jeremiah tells us that our heart is desperately wicked. And even scarier yet, it tells us deceitful above all things. Now, if your heart is deceitful, in other words, untruthful, above everything else, that means my heart is even more lying and deceitful than Satan. Boy, have a nice day. Be warmed and filled. Aren't you great? We aren't, we're not ending there. But can you love God and make a stupid choice? Sure. Can you get caught in that stupid choice so that it, in essence, spirals into a handful of other choices? Now, understand, the moment you start taking a step away from God, the moment you start taking a step away from God, every choice you make after that point has to be a braver and a graver step to step back. Not because you're farther away from God as far as He's concerned, but because now you've made a practice of this bad choice. And the moment it becomes a lifestyle, you know this. Like, for instance, let's just kind of play this out for a second. I, I don't want to use anyone in the room because that would be kind of scary under these circumstances. Let's say there's a guy named Bob. And Bob, by the way, he's, he's a Christian. You know, he's, he's, he's been pursuing God, but he meets this girl, Thelma. Because I don't know anyone in our fellowship named Thelma, so we're pretty safe at the moment. You know what's going to happen on Sunday. And you're like, oh, she's Thelma. <laughs> well, so she meets Thelma, and Thelma's really, um, you know, he says that God's the most important thing, and he's looking for a godly woman. And he meets Thelma. And when he meets Thelma, she has no interest in God. She doesn't read, she doesn't pray, she doesn't do anything, she doesn't go to church. But she's fine. She's cute. And Bob is really drawn to her, and he, and he starts pursuing a relationship with her. Now, which one of you out there wants to tell him the obvious truth? Now, let's face it. From a black and white perspective, we can look and say, bro, I know what you've said is 
that the most important thing for you is a godly woman. But what's clear is the most important thing to you is a cute woman because that's the one thing this girl's got because she ain't got none of that God stuff going on. Because you know what happens when you do that. On matters of the heart, you actually put yourself, you become the opponent on a moment like that, let's be honest. So what happens is, at that moment, in the beginning, it's like, no, no, no. And you know how that usually works, especially when you know your friends aren't going to approve. They start telling you things like, no, 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 no. It's, we're just co-workers, but they don't really work together. But they, yeah, I don't know, you know. Or, well, you don't understand. You know, it's like, I just, we like, like to go to the library together. And it's coincidental. I'm like, bro, you've never been to the library in your life. Now, all of a sudden, you're in the library all the time. I don't even know. I didn't even know you knew how to read, you know. And so you kind of know right from that moment that, you know, the habits are starting to change. But at that moment, if he just, you know, you know that if he just kind of says, you know what, really, we got to really put some tapers on this relationship because I want you to know I'm not pursuing you any form of romantic way. Well, I mean, that's kind of weird. But then it gets more intense. And as they start to become more casual with each other, they start to get closer. And then it's really convenient. And as it becomes convenient, they start kissing. And as they start kissing, now it's a much bigger choice to make. Because now you realize, now you've got to look at somebody you kissed and say, hmm, we really should, you know, I really shouldn't go out with you because I'm a Christian. That's going to go over really well. So, you know, what happens is you've got, you realize that's kind of, no, well, that's kind of a big step. So, well, I don't know about that. So I'm just going to kind of write it out because obviously the, the wave you're surfing is going to lead you to something good because you've been going from bad to worse. And, right? Well, that doesn't make any sense. But that's the way because we're still lying to each other. We're in, now we're becoming addicted to it. So what happens next? Now you guys are getting really close. And then she moves in and they move in together. Now, you know what happens in a moment like that. At that point, he knows he's probably not going to go to church anymore. Because if he goes to church, he is convinced that every person's going to look at him and with that, mm-hmm, I told you so. You lied to yourself and I knew it. Right. And so, you know that. So now, but, but sooner or later, somewhere in it, he starts to realize that his his relationship is suffering with God. Of course, duh. We, we would have told him that before it started. And now he's in this really rough place. And you sit down with him and you tell him, bro, I thought Jesus was the most. You told me Jesus was the most important relationship in your life. And what you really wanted was a godly woman. He's like, yeah, but you don't understand. Do you realize how hard it's going to be now to make this right? Because every step you take in that direction makes it harder and graver and braver for you to take the step to make it right. Let's be honest. Well, David did the same thing. What David did is he made a choice that will affect the rest of his life. Now, when was the last time you thought that the choice you made today was going to affect the rest of your life? When you thought, well, you know, I think I'm going to get that energy drink, or I think that I'm going to go and eat at Five Guys, or, you know, I think I'll actually try to show up at work a little early today. Or, I mean, well, did you really think that any choice you were going to make today really was going to just change the rest of your life? Like, from this point on, I will look back at this moment and say, my whole life was redirected right there. And that was David. David was supposed to be at it, told us in the last chapter. It was the time when the kings go out to battle. God made that clear. He didn't just say it was spring and people fight. You know, I mean, and it's, it's a, the weirdest thing. And to be honest, until I get here, this is, is weirder. Here, there's just this thing where you could be upset and something could happen and be like, hey, well, we'll, 
we discuss this tomorrow. You know, I mean, in America, they just keep going until they do get out. And, and, well, at least where I'm from. And, and the reason I say that is, is like they would fight and then the rainy season would come and then they're like, all right, well, interval, you know, it's intermission. And don't, when the rain stops, I'll come back and we'll kill each other again. OK, we'll have a good winter. OK, you know, Merry Christmas, you know. And obviously we're a thousand years before. Anyways. And so with all of that said, and then, you know, the reason I say that is it's spring. We've had time. And here's the point is we've had time off. We've had time off from that battle and we've had time off from that battle. But when the time comes now where everyone's getting up and fighting, everyone's getting up and fighting, except for the guy that's actually supposed to lead them. He's kind of like laying out. And that becomes the next step. That's the first step into a group of downward steps where each one becomes harder to make it right. But it started with the fact he was supposed to fight the Ammonites, and he didn't. Joab is out there. His men are out there. And of course, he sees the girl bathing, and he calls, he asks his servants, who that? Which, of course, there's a problem there, of course. What in the world are you doing? David's got by at this point, like, he's got over 10 wives by this point, 11 wives. And it's like, I mean, that's more than one per day of the week. You know, I mean, anyways, and. You know, of course, his son's going to way outdo dad when that time comes. But, <clears throat> you know, David kind of looks and he's talking to servants. And the servants are like, oh, well, I'll, I'll go find out. Oh, hey, that's, by the way, the wife of your bodyguard. She's the granddaughter of your chief counselor. Oh, and she happens to be named daughter of a covenant. And David's like, oh, he doesn't hear any of that. He's like, well, get her. And, of course, the servants have two choices, do what the king says or die. So it's a little rough for them. So they, they get her, and David lays with her. And now look at the steps he's taken. Now, at that point, how do you get it right? And then she sends a message, assumedly a couple months later, because it isn't like, you know, unless she's like, I have woman's intuition. But chances are it's a couple months later where she's like, David, we've got a bigger problem. You know, and which is so sad. Because there are people who spend their whole life trying to have a child, and they can't. And then there are other people who they get pregnant and it's a problem. You know, I know friends that were that were botched abortion, botched abortions. Their parents tried to kill them, and they're like, "Well, I'm glad the doctor failed." Some of them, by the way, they will spend at least two to three trips to the GP every week just to basically try to live a somewhat normal life because of the things they experienced in the attempt to kill before they were born. But imagine being born and the first thing, you know, it's like, you know, you were a problem. You were a problem from the beginning. Imagine that weirdness, that weird dynamic. You know, things would have been so much better had you not been born. I'm, I remember hearing that. I hear that a lot. It's a weird dynamic. So now David's got another issue. He's got a pregnant girl. That happens to be his, I mean, a bodyguard who's obviously a trained killer. And that's his wife. Now how do you make it right? And I wonder how far you get into this before you look and go, man, I just wish that I hadn't made those stupid choices to start with. So then he goes and has the, uh, brings the husband to try to get him to sort of make it look like he did it. And he's too noble. And ultimately he has him killed. And now he kills her husband. And she and as he has him killed, and this was a guy that's after God's own heart. Now look at. Yes, it is. 
But the moment you start taking steps down the slippery slope of this kind of sin, or any kind of sin, to be honest, and you don't want to make it right early, each step is harder. Not because of God, but because you've become it's become a habit now. Now the guy is dead. But David had said, by the way, when I kept silent, my bones grew old. My vitality dried up like the drought of summer. I mean, we need to recognize David was not okay. He might appear to be okay, but David wasn't okay. And he was getting old, and he was getting old really, really quick from the inside. So finally, God, in his love for David, has to rescue David because there's no way David has the strength, as mighty as he was, the tens of thousands that he would take down to the Philistines. He wasn't strong enough to make himself right anymore. it's, It's just like this. Where we lived in California, we would often get what's called a riptide. Now, a riptide is a countertide to the waves. It's actually this strange current that pulls you out to sea. On certain days, we'd have these days called red tide. Red tide mean there was a specific type of plankton, or if you will, a specific type of kelp that would kind of come in. It was kind of corrosive. It would kind of burn a bit, especially in your eyes. And bad days to surf. But it would, with that red tide would often come. It was a sign. It was a great sign that at that point it was not a day to go out because unless you were a really good surfer because no doubt, uh, or a good swimmer, because no doubt you were going to get pulled out. And you kind of knew if you stepped in on a day like that, you were going to fight that current from the moment you stepped in. And all you had to do was relax and let it happen. And the next thing you know, you're a mile out from shore. And I don't know if you realize, that is a long way to swim. Especially when the current hasn't stopped pulling you out. So now you're actually trying to get that mile, plus you have to fight the current that you have now put yourself in the middle of. Well, that's what sin is. It is a riptide. And what happens is you get to that place where now you're so far from where you want to be and God recognizes when you're like, David is never going to be able to swim back to shore at this point. So God goes in after him. Aren't you thankful at a moment like that? And he sends Nathan the prophet who lays out a story of a similar nature, a parable, and David, of course, throws out his judgment on it, and his judgment on it was without mercy. And that was where, at least if you look at your handout, it starts, by the way, with Nathan's response, and this is to cap up for uh, context. It says in Second Samuel twelve five, David's anger was greatly aroused against the man in the story. And Nathan, the prophet, says, As the Lord lives... David responds, the man who has done this shall surely die and he shall restore full fold for the lamb because he did this thing and he had no pity. No pity was the, and it's an interesting phrase. In essence, it means he lost his heart. Now, I bet every one of you has this. I can certainly tell you I do. Certain things that when I find myself in the middle of it, I just lose my heart. It's like I have to shut my heart off to stay there. You know, places where when you first started, your heart bothers you. It's part of your conscience going, hey, you really shouldn't be here. You know what they're saying is destructive to people you love, or you know that what this is is really going to pull you away from the Lord. You know you're not in a good place. You know this is going to drag you. You know that there's a riptide here. You know, 
this is going to drag you away from safety. You know that. You know that. And you're like, no, 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 I'm stronger, I'm cool. And somewhere down the line, you have to shut that off. David looks at this story, and he goes, that guy was heartless by the time this thing was done. Verse 13, Nathan says, well, you know, Nathan actually says, he says, you are the man. You're the, you don't realize that this, the guy you're speaking about is yourself, David. And David's response in verse 13 is, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, the Lord has put away your sin. You're not going to die. But because of this deed that you have given, great occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child who was born is going to die. Now, notice when he says this, it seems like the child's already born. It doesn't say the child is going to be born. It says the child, you already have had time with this child, David, but he's going to die. And what I want to point out as we go through this text is God forgives, but sin still leaves ripples. Those choices are still going to bear forth fruit, whether we like it or not. Now, there is warning in that, but I want to warn you, because of the things that take place in this chapter, you might find yourself on one side or the other, and either extreme is a dangerous one. So pray with me really quick, and we'll start talking about these results. Lord, I pray again, open our hearts. Open our hearts, Lord, so that what you want to speak to us individually we could hear. And open us as a family, Lord, because we want to be led by you to do what you call us to here. We want to make the changes that were necessary that are necessary regardless of how grave and how brave. Because we really do want to make you the number one thing. Well, let our choices reflect that in Jesus' name. Amen. David has already shown us three, exult, three results between his interaction uh, and his psalms. One is that his soul suffered. In other words, you start, to, you, you erode. Now, and I've I got to be honest, I, mean, I put myself in David's shoes. He's a songwriter, you know, he's a passionate guy, he was a fighter. Uh, all the things that, I, you know, the, the fighting thing has been, praise God, laid to rest. But it's like I, I find myself very, you know, I, I liken myself a lot to what I read about David. And the reason I say that is there's a part of me that wonders when David, when David started writing this and he said, you know, that my bones grew old, my vitality was dried up because, because your hand was heavy on me. And I read that and I've got to be honest, there's a part of me that reads that and thinks if I were David at that moment, I would be so bummed because I'd think, oh, God. Why wasn't I this miserable without you having to make me this miserable? I mean, if I really love you and I really am passionate about you the way I should be, and I know that there have been times I've been like that, why wasn't I suffering for these choices just because I knew they were wrong? Why did your hand have to be heavy on me to make me feel this bad? Not blaming God, but blaming me. I'm like... I should have been this miserable without your help just because this was so wrong. But then remember what David said about the man in the story. He said he did this without pity. He did this and he shut off his heart. He lost his heart to do this. You could see David go, man, that's, no, that's, that is me. I mean, for me to keep doing this, I cannot have a real tender heart and keep doing this. Because either I really have to bite into and fully buy the lie that, God, you are everything I claim, but I'm not living like it. Or I've got to man up and realize, man, I've been living a lie because I've been just playing this game where it's verbal, but my choices are clearly so contrary, contrary to that. 
But as what Nathan said here, that you've given great occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, not only does his soul suffer, but David gave the adversary ammo. Ammo is a short for ammunition. And you know this. There are people out there that really don't want to believe in God. They love all the things of God. They just don't want to believe in one that they have to actually submit to. That's always the problem is a lordship issue. You know, hey, I'm happy to take God if he's going to bail me out of jail and he's going to bail me out of hell and he's going to bless me and give me stuff. But if he tells me what to do, we're going to have a problem. Well, you've got to receive God for who he is. And the reason I say that is the, those people that are out there that don't want to receive the Lord, they're looking to see Christians be every, like everyone else. If we are really starkly different, as God calls us to, than the rest of the world, it is in their face the evidence that God displays through that. And this is why he tells us to do things very contrary to the world around us. And we will go, oh, yeah, but the world around, well, we need to be more like them. And God goes, stop being like them. Because if you're like them, the rest of the world says, well, they're no different. And, and what Nathan is saying to David is, you know, your behavior has actually given bullets to the enemy to shoot at you. You're aware of that. And actually, worse yet, given bullets to shoot at me. Because the moment they think that we're just like the rest of the world, you know where that goes with it. The next conclusion of that is, well, then God's not real. If you guys are just like, if your divorce rate is just like the world's divorce rate, if you're shooting at everyone else like everyone else is shooting at everyone else, if you're indifferent about what it really means and you're not loving each other the way God tells us, which is to be selfless. And we tell people that we are born again and we are new creations. And they look and go, well, how are you new? And if we look just like everybody else, then they go, well, and how, how do I know your God's real? You look like everyone else. And they have a right to do that if they're genuinely skeptical. But God will nail them, and that's not my job. I'm thankful for that. I just don't want to give the enemy any ammunition. And Nathan looks and he goes, you realize you've armed the adversary by your behavior. The moment a high-profile guy on television, when we're all aware of the fact most of those guys, I can't tell you they're saved or not, but they're definitely a circus. You know, and the moment one of those guys gets nailed for tax evasion or money laundering or some kind of crazy show, falls morally. The world really stands up and applauds it. Because they're like, see, told you. They shouldn't exist. When I watched a 911 happen, and then I had friends who live in Israel who were contacting me and saying, are you okay? <laughs> Which is a, a funny thing to think. But they were showing me video of the Palestinians dancing in the streets, celebrating the destruction of 5,000 people. My heart just melted. It was like, I can't. That they could hate people they don't know that much because of their doctrines. Innocent people who went to work just like any other day had no idea that that would be the day they, they faced God because of it. Because they really don't want America and they don't want, you know, we know this, but they don't want England. You guys, we here are the little Satan. America's bigger Satan. I think it's just because we have more property over there. But in the end of it all, we're still Satan as far as these people are concerned. And I mean, it's just amazing when you start looking at a lot of this. 
But like anything that happens here causes that to celebrate because they look and they say, look at that destruction, and that's what we're looking for anyways. And again, I'm not saying that every person there is that way, but I am saying that there is a whole group of people that are like that. And the adversaries of, of Christians are very much the same. Anything they see that causes infighting and separation and all that stuff, they just love it. And especially when you see something like this, and how much more profile could you get than David? So his soul was suffering and gave the adversary ammo. But the other thing was, it says here in verse 14, that the child born he will surely die. He lost his legacy. And I find this interesting. We forfeit our fruit when we start to choose sin. Let me say that again. We forfeit our fruit when we start to choose sin. You know what's interesting? Who was the first person who sinned in Scripture? Oh, let me say this. Who's the first person who sinned according to knowledge? Adam. Eve actually was genuinely deceived. First Timothy makes that clear. In other words, she sinned, but she sinned ignorantly. Adam, on the other hand, he was fully aware of what the situation was. He was fully conscious of the truth and made that choice. How many generations did it take before one of their children was murdered? It seemed like the first two. And one killed the other. Interesting how he forfeited fruit from that. On the other side of that, just before David was Saul, if you remember Saul's choices in sin that the first thing he did, one of the first things he lost was that his son Jonathan, Saul's son Jonathan, would not be king as a result of it. He forfeited his fruit. And the moment we start choosing sin, we forfeit the fruit that God wants to bear through us because we can only bear that fruit if we cling to Jesus and we can't cling to Jesus and run after sin at the same time. We're going to try to, in essence, sever ourselves from Christ, although he won't leave us or forsake us. And... And in that, they try to run after something like that, but we're certainly not clinging to them. It's like a married couple living together, but they're nowhere near each other physically. They're not going to have any babies that way, and I'm not trying to get weird, but you get the idea. But there's more to it, because now that starts to roll out. But I want you to realize, this can be a very challenging and a very encouraging text as we read the rest of this, but I think it's going to really point out where we are, how we address Scripture like this. So David now has been nailed, but God has forgiven him, but there's going to be fruit from those, la those labors regardless. It's just not godly fruit. And I remind you, a good portion, at least half of the kids that David has, are adolescent. They're no dummies. They're, they've got to be aware of what's going on here. Verse 15. Nathan departed from his house, and I remind you, or reparted to his house, I remind you, he told him that the child that was born... So you guys, that child's going to die. And the Lord struck that child. The child. Notice it says that Uriah's wife bore to David. Notice that God made note that Bathsheba, in verse 15, is Uriah's wife. Did you notice that? Uriah, by the way, who was that? Well, that was her husband, the one that David had killed. And it became ill. David, therefore, pleaded with God for the child. The word pleaded is the word bakash, and it means to strive towards. In other words, David, with all of his might now, his passion is being all about begging God. And David fasted, and he went in all, and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of the house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat with them. There comes a place when we are actually nailed in our sin where we become impervious to any human consolation and the only comfort we can find is in God. And God will allow that. 
But there becomes an issue we need to recognize here. There is a huge difference between hating the sin and hating the consequence. And it is important to note, if you hate the consequence, I mean, you should because it's usually awful. The moment it lessens, you'll run back to the sin. But if you hate the sin, you'll do what is necessary to not get to it again. I knew a guy that had been arrested 11 different times for driving under the influence. And each time the consequences got more grave. Of course, it cost him more and so forth. And after a while, of course, he wound up driving with, you know, without a license because they took it from him. But that 11th time, he nearly killed someone. And that really startled him and it freaked him out. But did he hate drinking and driving? Well, what would you do if you wanted to completely remove the possibility of that sin? Well, you can make two choices. Never drive again or never drink again. Or if you don't do both, it's not possible either. The guy was like, well... And understand, I'm not trying to be a legalist, but for this guy, he needed to stay away because he couldn't, the guy couldn't have a drink without making it 20. And he's like, well, I, you know, I'm just going to, I'll drive on certain days, I'll drink on certain other days. But of course, you know that it's not going to work out. So the next time, he wound up killing someone. The problem was is that the consequences got more grace, more grave, sorry. But he never hated the sin. He just hated the consequences. And when you are in a place like this with David, David's consequences are pretty, well, they're literally grave. He has a child who's going to die, and God promised him that. And David is pleading with God. The question is, if God says no to your pleas, do you worship him anyways? Is he really the thing you're looking for in this? Or are you just looking to make God the means to the end of making the situation easier. Does that make sense? Because I'll be honest, we can all lie about this to ourselves and even to each other. I'll say so once you lie to yourself, you'll be a great liar to anyone else because you'll be very convincing because you've convinced yourself. But if what you want is, I mean, you've made these choices and your life's miserable as a result of it and all you want is your life better. All you want is your life better. And so you turn to God so that he can make your life better and then your life gets better and then you bail on God because your life's better because he was a means to that end. Well, David is pleading. And he knows at this moment no food's going to comfort him, no people are going to comfort him. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says this, by the way, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with, with, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. It does not say God comforted you so you can comfort people with the same problem. It's usually how people try to apply this. Because we are not the comfort, we are the means to the end being Jesus. And so the situation is, hey, look at, let's face it, there are certain situations I will never have a miscarriage. I am not, well, the plumbing ain't there for it. It's, I'm not capable of that. And I can say, well, I don't know how I could minister to somebody who has had a miscarriage because they'd be like, well, you don't understand. Well, I'm not the source of comfort. I'm just the vehicle because if it's the God of all comfort, can I just bring you to Jesus? 
Because though I've never had that, I know what it's like to hurt. And I know what it's like to be disappointed. And I may not know your circumstances. I will never live those. But I know what it's like to need comfort. And I know where that comfort can be found. And because he's the God of all comfort, there will be areas where no other comfort will work. So David is fasting. And I have to bring this as a side note, but it is an important one for this. What in the world about, what's this deal with fasting? He lays on the ground on his face and he fasts. I'm going to make this quick because it's a side note, but I really do want us to kind of get this. So please, again, like always, don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. But search these scriptures out. I've kind of noticed in scripture there's basically four reasons for fasting. And fasting, again, in the simplest sense, is refraining from something consciously for a consistent period of time. Traditionally, and the most common, of course, is food. We fast from food, but we can fast from a lot of things. I have a daughter who once a year would fast from screens for a month. Could you imagine fasting from screens? How weird that would be. I mean, that means iPhones, iPads, watching things on your laptop, watching the television. She'd spend that time, but it's, it's always about replacing. But Here are the four basic things, but of course the most common is food. The first is pain. We don't eat because we're in pain. We see that in, for what it's worth, in Zechariah 7, 5. One of you fasted and mourned, and he speaks about it. Did you really do it for me? Ezra tells us this in Ezra 9, 5. It tells us that in Nehemiah, when Nehemiah finds out the condition of Jerusalem, that he fasts because he just can't eat, Nehemiah 1, 4. And of course we see that. As David, when he discovers that Saul and his son Jonathan was David's best friend, had been killed in battle, 2 Samuel 1.12, he fasts. He's certainly not trying to bring him back from the dead. He's certainly not trying to get something out of it. He's just really bumming and he doesn't want to eat. Second is not just pain, but perspective. And what I see in the first case, pain becomes peace. When we are when we're seeking to get to that place where it's just the Lord and we are in pain, that pain can become peace as we seek the Lord. So not only is there pain, but there's for perspective. You really don't know what to do. You're looking for the path. You're looking for the plan. You're looking for the clarity on something. And in that, you seek him. Uh, Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles chapter 20, by the way, he had gotten a letter. Uh, well, he had actually, I'm sorry, he had been, he'd been made really clear that the people of the East, the Edomites, so forth, had gathered together and he was completely outmanned. He was outgunned. He was facing an invincible, uh, seemingly invincible and innumerable army. And he doesn't know what to do. So it said Jehoshaphat feared and he set himself to seek the Lord and proclaim to fast. He's like, well, we all need to get what God's, how God sees this because we really don't know. And we really, I need to see how God sees this because I really can't see it. I don't get it. It's just obscure to me. Same thing in Nehemiah's case as well because Nehemiah, and I love this about him, he's a man who, who prays and then acts. Prays and then acts. He doesn't know what to do, so he seeks the Lord in prayer. And then he's like, all right, God, now what do I do? And God tells him, and he does it. In Acts, the Holy Spirit had made clear to set apart Saul and Barnabas, Paul, he will be called. And they went and they've been fasting and praying, been seeking God for guidance in that. And then, as they went out, they appointed elders in every church and they prayed with fasting and they commended them to the Lord to whom they had believed. They were like, well, who do we want to see raised up in this church? God, I need your clarity on this because I really don't know. 
Certain people look great. They're really gifted in whatever their thing is. But I need your perspective on it. So I can say in the first case, our pain becomes peace. But putting Jesus in the second here, while we're looking for perspective, obscurity becomes clarity. And hey, if you don't know, like, God, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do, I suggest give it a go. Take a day and don't eat. Or take a day and fast from whatever the thing is that could pull you away from that. But replace that time with time alone with the Lord. The third is purity. So pain, perspective, purity. We see several cases in Scripture. Jeremiah 36, 9. Uh, in Jonah's case, if you remember, when Jonah proclaims to the people of Nineveh, 40 days on your toast, and they actually proclaim a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Joel tells us, as God declares in Joel 2.12, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and with mourning. We'll see the same thing, by the way, for what it's worth in 1 Samuel chapter 7. And as the people became really clear in asking for a king, they had been turning away from God to do so. And the people fast because they realized they've filthed themselves up. They've dirtied themselves in their own ambitions. And look, maybe that's the case where what you've done is you've... Uh, You've really gone into something, you've gotten deep into it, and you like this situation, and you just, you realize that though God is going to forgive you, you're, there's a whole lot of radical changes that need to take, need to take place in your mind to, because you've filthed your mind out, and you've filthed your behavior out, and you've become common to certain choices you know you should just shouldn't be making. Well, fasting is one of those things that people have done in Scripture to go, you know what, I just really need to be purged from these things. And in a case like that, of course, you know, putrescence becomes innocence. And I do love that. And finally, that of prayer. We see that, for instance, in Second Samuel, like here with David. David certainly couldn't be just demanding something of God, but he is striving with God and begging him. But in the end of it all, chaos becomes calm when we actually seek the Lord in this. Now, for what it's worth, we'll see the same thing for what's worth. Daniel does the same thing in Daniel 9.3, Ezra will see as well in Ezra 8.23. David here, as he's fasting, he's maybe, one thing's for sure, even though he is not going to get this child back here on earth, David is going to get perspective so he's ready when the child isn't not going to be with him anymore. Verse 18. Then the seventh day came to pass and that child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell David that the child was dead. But they said, indeed, while the child was alive, he spoke to me, he wouldn't heed our voice. I mean, remember, he wouldn't eat. He was just laying on the floor on his face. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do some harm. You ever have a person where you realize he's already freaked out over the situation or she's already freaked out? Boy, if I give him the news now, they're going to go mental. Well, you're aware of the fact that if you do that in front of them, they have a tendency to kind of know what's going on because they kind of look at you and you're like, you know, they're like, you're just going to have to tell me now. So David saw his servants were whispering and David perceived that the child was dead. Why else would they be whispering like this? So David said to his servants, and imagine how you know strange this would be after this. Is the child dead? And they said, well, yeah, yeah, yeah he, he's dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house and when he requested, they set food before him and they ate. Now, wouldn't that be strange? The child was alive, but he was sick, and David is all over the floor about it. The child finally dies, and David's like, oh, okay. And then he heads to church, and he just praises God. And then he comes over, and he goes, all right, love, now make me some dinner. And, of course, the people are, think that is a little strange. 
And they said, his servants said to him, what is this thing you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you got up and ate food. Listen to David's response. He said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me? The child may live. But now that he's dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Listen, I shall go to him. But he shall not return to me. Two things that David understood, and you need to recognize, whether this has happened to you or whether there's someone that God will bring your path before you that has experienced this. God knows where to take children. And he takes them to be with him. David knew that his home was with the Lord. And he knew that he would spend the rest of eternity with this living God. And for David to say, I will go to him, David was fully convinced this child was going to be with the Lord. Interesting, the one thing David saw as final here was death. Well, David's going to grow on that too. Because ultimately, David would say in Psalm 16, you will not leave my soul in Sheol or the grave or hell. But rather, David would say this in Psalm 17, verse 15, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness and I will be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Now it is important to note that throughout Scripture, and and again, let me make this clear, this is my perspective on this, and you're certainly welcome to disagree and be a Christian, that God has consistently throughout Scripture given an age where He held people older than that accountable and younger than that not accountable. The classic example of that, for instance, was in the situation where in Numbers 13 and 14, the spies went and spied out the promised land and came back to give, of course, Joshua and Caleb gave the great report. The rest of them said, yeah, but you know, the land may be good, but we're like grasshoppers compared to those guys. They're giants, and they were big guys. And the people were like, well, we're not going to go, we're not going to go. And they said, you know, and then they're like, God hates our kids. God eats our children. God brought us over to kill our children. And God's like, I'll show you that. I didn't come to kill your kids. You guys aren't getting into the promised land, but your children are. So everyone 20 years old and older, you guys are all going to die in the wilderness except Joshua and Caleb. But anyone younger than that, and do you think those people complain too? I mean, they're teenagers. Of course they complain. You know. But God looked and he says, you know what? I'm not going to hold you liable to this yet. And when he talks about people like, for instance, the priests come in service, he uses the same age. Now, I'm not telling you there's a magic age for this. I mean, to be honest, the Jews today, they actually make it 13 because that is the time when you become a daughter or a son of the commandments because the word for command is mitzvahot, is commandments, and a son is ben or arbar, and a, because that's the Aramaic, and the daughter is bat. And therefore, when you become a son of the commandments, you have your bar mitzvah. What that means is, as far as your parents are concerned, you are liable for your choices now. And in the same way, until about 30 years ago, because it was much more grave than it is now, there is still a very big distinction in age here, 18 or 21, in regards to crimes committed. You know, there is, you know, the question is, will you be tried as an adult? Which tells you that if you're tried as an adult, there is going to be a different route you can take than you could take before that point in regards to what they're going to hold you liable to, or at least to what degree. I mean, I remember there was a time, because I'm really old, I there was a time when parents would get punished for some of the things their children did. 
because they just assumed that the parents were somehow liable, especially in the areas of vandalism. You'd go and do something, and they would make your parents pay for it. The reason I say that is they just assumed that the parents were responsible. That was before we have this mindset, the European Union mindset, which says, by the way, the child is not actually under the guardianship of the parents. The child is property of the community. Do you know that's actually one of the stanzas within the European Union in regards to this whole child thing? For what it's worth, here's the point of it. So what happens if a child is not held liable? For instance, a child that, was, that died before they were born. Well, they have no guilt to stand before God with. And they stand before God and are embraced. If you've lost a child, I can tell you that child's with the Lord. And as far as I'm concerned, as far as David is concerned, he would tell you the same thing. Now, that can go in weird places, no doubt. But I remember, and Ruthie can tell you this, I prayed because I believe this so much, I prayed that God would, if my children would not choose the Lord by the time that they were held accountable, before they stood before Him and they died, I prayed that God would kill them before they were actually liable. Sounds pretty awful, doesn't it? Not if I'm looking from an eternal perspective. Now, I'm not ever thinking, I'm going to kill them. There are times where I'm like, they're going to kill me. But especially my youngest, I still think she might kill me in my sleep. But, but I was like, from an, because, I mean, they both know this. Nothing is, a more, nothing is more important to me than spending eternity with these kids and with my wife. And though, because I'll never know that until I stand before them, well, I'd like to think that they'll make a choice that'll be obvious and clear to me. It isn't like I can take that matter into my own hand and go, well, you know, you're getting near that age, kid, and you're clearly reprobate, so I'm just going to kill you and just seal the deal. Well, that's nonsense, because then I'm guilty of murder because I'm killing somebody, and I'm I'm playing the role of God, and I can't do that. But I know that God knows my children, and He knows my heart. And when we look at things like children dying... I mean, there's a lot of places we can go with it. And of course, we ask why. And God, there's nothing God ever allows or does that only has one reason to it. He's working on so many levels. But I started to wonder as I was reading this, what would this child have gone through? What did God spare this child of? With all the intrigue and the, the, the adultery and the murder and all that was involved with all of these other kids that would have been his brother. Or it, he says, it's so good he or she. You know, that your brother, oh, let me just tell you, you're just a bastard. I mean, the things they could have said that God spared him from. That child, all that child will ever know is the glory of God. All the same, David has forfeited this fruitfulness in his sin. But now look at verse 24. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife. Now, interesting, twice now she's mourned for her husband and now for this baby. And he went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son and called his name Shlomo, or Solomon, which means brings peace. Now the Lord loved him. And he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet, and he called his name Yedidiah. We might say Jedidiah, which just sounds like he's Amish. But Yedidiah means Beloved of God. And it appears when it says, so he called his name Yedidiah, that that was God who gave him that name. 
like, I love you. Now, Nathan has come twice because of his kids. Would you freak out when Nathan shows up a second time? But Shiva's pregnant. But Shiva's pregnant. Nathan shows up. The last time that happened wasn't so good. Be like, oh, no. But he goes, you know what? God's going to call this child not Dayid. Yedidia. Beloved of God. I think, wow. The grace of God in doing this. But I want you to I want to point out something here. Verse twenty four Whose wife is Bathsheba listed as there? David comforted Bathsheba, his wife. But wasn't she Uriah's wife? Yes. She was Uriah's wife. And that child was the product of that of, of that adulterous relationship. And God has now redeemed it. Now, wait a minute. Did God overlook that sin? Absolutely not. And of course, if you think that's the case, you have not read the rest of the book. And here's my challenge right now. Even at this moment, there is enough grace in this chapter to flesh out the legalist and the libertine in each of us and which side you lean towards. There's enough grace at this moment that I look at because at this moment, God has taken another child from this relationship and said, I love this child and this child. I wonder at this moment if David thought, well, this is going to be my successor. I wonder. And in a moment like this, if you were the legalist, you could say there's enough grace in this chapter to flesh out of the legalist condemnation. Oh, my goodness. David got away with it. Who does he think he is? He literally got away with murder. Okay. Well, that might be some of you. There are others in the room that I say there's enough grace in this chapter to flesh out the libertine to think there's license to go, oh, well, David got away with it. Well, then I might as well get away with it. Neither, neither of those is healthy and neither of those shows us where we are with the Lord in a good light, does it? What that shows us is that we're not who we think we are. Because if we really loved God, neither of those would function well in our hearts. And I look at this and I realize... God, I mean, there's a part of me that thinks, thank you, God, for forgiving sin and for giving a new start. Thank you for that, Lord. Because I'm a horrible, rotten sinner. But there's another part that goes, whoa, bad stuff happens, God. Keep me from that so that I don't have to reap that kind of thing in my life. And that's a healthier place to be because in both of those cases, what becomes more important is God and not just my so-called freedom. Last verses. Now, Joab fought against Rabbah and the people of honor. I remind you, while all of this is happening, David has still never gone to battle. That's been over a year that they've been fighting. It's a long time to fight, especially without your king. And he took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. And I have taken the city's water supply. Now, therefore, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. Do you hear the cheek in that? And I realize this is what happens as well when we choose sin, as we start to release the respect that we should be properly retaining. David now is losing respect from his chief commander. His commander is like, listen, and you, who talks to a king this way? Either you get down here and finish this job 
or I'm going to call it by my name. That's an ultimatum. And the reason he's saying this is because Joab knew that David had this guy murdered. This is what happens when we choose sin is people that used to respect us when we lose that respect. So what happened? Wait a minute. Let me show you. In both of these cases, what we see is we see the fallout and the forgiveness. We see, if you will, in this sort of we see the grief, but we also see the grace. We see the grief and the loss of a child and we see the grace as God gives him a new one. I hate to say it that way, but God grant, grants him another child. And ultimately, what we'll see is that, that, that Solomon will have a few brothers as well. I mean, Solomon won't be the only child born from Bathsheba. We'll see that in First Corinthians. But we also see here again the grief and the grace, the fallout and the forgiveness. The grief, at this point now, he's reaping the consequences of not getting into the battle. And this guy's like, look at you're going to lose the plot on this one if you don't step in now. Now, Rabbah was the chief, the capital city of the Ammonites. And the water supply was at the bottom. So at this point, basically the city is about to fall. The only thing that's left at this point is bringing in the boys and taking this thing down. And he's like, look, it, I can do this with or without you. But I warn you, you don't step into this thing. Now you'll have no part in it. But now I remind you, it's the grief and then the grace. Verse 29, David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it. And he took it. And he took the king's crown from his head, whose weight was a talent of gold, with, it says, with precious stones, and it was set on David's head. So he also brought the spoil of the city in great abundance. Now, does anyone know how heavy a talent is? A talent is, in essence, well, a talent is, is like 75 pounds. Now, that may not mean much to you, if you will, but let me put it this way. That is, in essence, five and a half stone. Or if I'm going to do it the other way around, 75, let's see, that's 35. So you're kind of looking at 30 kilos. Now, put a crown of 30 kilos on your head. You realize what that means is that crown would not be allowed by itself to fly without you paying for an excessive weight surcharge. Are you aware of that? Right? What is it? 20, 25 pounds, right? I mean, 20, 25 kilos. So it's heavier than the allowable weight baggage allowance at an airport. Because they say, you know, it's, you know, because they're, you know, whatever. Conveyor belts don't work with them. Although those same conveyor belts did three times as much just a few years. Anyways, I'm not complaining. Oh, yes, I am. I'm, forgive me. All right. whole point is this. Is why would God even make mention? He could have just said, and then he took this king's crown and it was gigantic and super heavy. Well, first of all, what's clear is this must be a ridiculously large crown. And then I realize one of the kings of the Ammonites, by the way, the originally was a guy who, by the way, had this giant head because he was a giant guy. And it may have been his for what it's worth. Um, on the other side of it. And that could easily be the case. Uh, it was King Og, if you remember all the way back when the Ammonites were originally fought in the Torah. He said he was 13 feet tall. That's a big guy. That's more than twice my height. That's a big guy. But there's something even more important as far as I'm concerned. Because God gave that specific measurement before. Something that was one talent of pure gold. Does anyone remember what that was? The lampstand. The lampstand, which, by the way, was the only lampstand still in the tabernacle. 
that would have been outside of David's house. It was the one thing that brought light back to the place so that you could get from the outside of the tent to the place of intimacy with God. And I think that's interesting that God put that back on his head. And granted, it would be quite a bit of a, a heavy thing at this point, let's be honest. I don't think David could walk around with that thing, not without serious need of a chiropractor. And I look at this and I realize, what did God do in this? God gave David a second chance. So what did he do? He took the king's crown. It was about a, it was about a talent of gold, precious stones. And it said in verse 31 that he brought out the people who were, were in the town of Rabbah, put them to work with saws, iron picks, and iron axes, and made them cross over to brickworks. And he did all of this to all the cities of the people of Ammon. And then David returned to Jerusalem. Amos 1.13 tells us that God would curse the people of Ammonite, the Ammonites because of their tremendous cruelty. They'd rip open pregnant women. Forgive me for being so graphic. Uh, they would burn people alive. They would certainly burn their children alive because they worship Molech. And the requirement for that God of pleasure was to take your baby. It was, a, it was a brass idol that you set a fire inside the actual idol until it turned bright red. And then you took this baby, your own baby, and you threw it on this thing until it was seared alive in front of you. And, and these were the kind of people that, that, that were the Ammonites. And this was a normal day's business for them. And yet here David gets tremendous victory over the same battle that he didn't enter into for over a year. And again, let me say it again. There's enough grace in this chapter to flesh out the legalist to condemnation. Con- I can't even say the word now. There's enough grace in this chapter to flesh out the libertine to license. And neither is healthy. On the other side of it, God, forgive me for where I would grant license to something that could set me on a path to a riptide. God, on the other side of that, thank you so much for your grace that gives me a second chance. In a lot of sports, we draw lines. I just remember this, in, where you, you were having a slump or something, and you just draw this line. And as a coach, we would do that. There would be a player, and he'd be having a rough time. I'd write his name, and I'd draw a line. And it was just a mental thing, of course. It wasn't like the magic line. You know, and then you'd say, all right, you're done. Now that guy is done, and either I'm going to pull you out of the game, or you're going to say, that part's done, and we're going to get back in it. But you still know that that whole game, you kind of have to get over the fact you were that guy, and you just kind of drag it over. But you try to mentally say, I need a new guy here. And sometimes it works. Certain guys, that actually would work. I would call it the magic line for them because it worked. Although there's no magic was on their head. We're all aware of that. And in the same way, when we look at certain situations and we see God's grace, we need to recognize God, when he forgives, he genuinely forgives. And as much as we can look at David and we can look with condemnation because we're like, look at all that he did. God's like, why don't you look at all that you've done if you want to play that game? And how much have I forgiven from you? And you're like, well, not that. God's like, it doesn't matter if it's that. The question is, is that what, would it, what would your life be like if I hadn't forgiven those things? Have you forgotten the nastiness you yourself have delved into? And what I really love is, notice in this, there is, there is a payout from those, those, the things you've sowed. But there is forgiveness and grace. And there is a whole second chance to live this thing out. And the reason I say that, that's the whole message of the cross and the resurrection. The cross says there is forgiveness. And the resurrection said there's a second chance. But I'm so thankful for this. It tells us whoever is in Christ 
is a new creation. It doesn't say whoever was in Christ became a new creation. And the reason I say that is, what happens when Hugo's on my team and he's having a rough day and I draw the line and he goes in there and he starts doing well for a bit, but then he makes another mistake? He's going to completely forget that line was drawn and he's going to be like, oh, it's just another wash out of a day because he's like, well, I drew the line, but now I've blown it again. And God continues to make us new creations because he really just doesn't want us living a whole life carrying all that nastiness with us because we won't have the relationship with him he intends. And that's to praise him. So on one side we could say, oh God, how could you forgive that guy from his horrible sins and how could you actually bless him after that? Bless him? Okay, look, not sending him to hell, you're a loving God, I get all that. But man, you're going to bless him now? Do you know what that sounds like? sounds like Jonah. And I don't know if you've, if you've read the book of Jonah. It's only four chapters. It's a quick book. You're left at the end of it all kind of like you, you, in my opinion, like you drank coffee where even if they put all kinds of stuff in it and it's sweet, by the time you're done, you're like, ah, it's bitter. And, ah. You know, and again, I'm not condemning you for it, but the reason I say that is you read the chapters and by the time you're done, you're like, ah, ah. doesn't the guy like repent and get nice? Isn't there some kind of... Where's the warm fuzzy in that? You know, and, and the reason I say that is, is we can be like that. Where we're like, God, okay, I, I get that you're not going to send him to hell. I don't want him to go to hell either. But could you just make the rest of his life miserable? There's no grace in that. It's going to be rough enough because of the seeds he's sown or she's sown. And there are people who've done horrible things to or around or in front of us that the human thing and all that, because I'm a natural fighter, is, well, you know, if their life isn't miserable enough, I'll volunteer to help out with that, you know. But then I also know that God's like, do you want to do that with yourself? And there is nobody that I've known that I think deserves more of a miserable life than I. And I'm being sincere with that. I'm sure there are people out there as far as what they've done versus what I've done or whatever. It's silly to compare. But in the end of it all, I really deserved, it's a miserable life. And when people ask, how is, how's your life? And I'm like, it's like the happy ever after part of a, of a fairy tale. I'm being sincere because I realize every breath I get, even if it's a strained one, is still a breath I don't deserve. And I mean, I get to sit here and do this with you guys and we're in a warm room tonight. We're not freezing or any of that or building snowmen in the pews. I mean, and we're here, we're getting blessed by God's word. Do you realize how strange that is? And the reason I say that is, as, as we go to prayer, we could read this and go, well, he got away with it. Let's just try it ourselves. Or how dare he get away with it? Or we could take a good look at ourselves and go, God, thank you for forgiving what I wouldn't have forgiven because I'm clearly demonstrating that with that Pharisaic attitude. Or God, don't let me love this stuff to get jumping back into the riptide like a libertine because that's my Sadducee heart wants to do that. This chapter can be a chapter of fantastic encouragement if we look at ourselves and realize the sinners we are. But it's also a preventative warning to say, do you really still want to sow these seeds in the lawn of your heart? Because they're still going to bear forth fruit, even if the vertical's right. You're still going to pay for it on the horizontal. So, you break the law, and then you find Christ, and you still go to jail, and you say, but God, God's like, well, we're right. So I guess you've got a prison ministry. I mean, 
And the reason I say that is, is it's like, make sure this one's right. And when you make sure this one's right, get the perspective of God in it and realize, yeah, I deserve this. And you know what? David, from this point on, he'll never be the same. When his kids do horrible things to him, he'll be like, yeah, I deserve that. He actually will never be the father he needs to be because he doesn't feel like he has a right to punish his kids like he could because he knows he himself. In other words, though he's been forgiven of it, David still carries that around with him, you can tell. And imagine being able to say, you know what? That's bad, but I don't think, you know, how can I tell you it's bad? Because you just go, you hypocrite. David will never be the dad he needs to be. David will die, you guys, on his death. But you know what? One of the things that really breaks my heart, especially me as a father, who, by the way, never wanted kids, never, never, never wanted kids until I got married and I found the Lord. Well, the Lord found me. And, and in all of that, and then the Lord changed my heart and he said, you are a new creation and you need to trust me. And I'm like, okay. And it's like, but David would lay there and he's like, yeah, all these things have happened and I've never seen the, you know, the, you know, I'm old now, I was young and now I'm old. And he's like, you know, I've never seen the righteous forsaken. I've never seen their children begging bread. But David lays there and he goes, you know, even though my family's not really with the Lord, I can still say God's faithful. I can still see how he's provided for me. But nothing's as beautiful as it could be because I look at my own family and I just, see them enjoying it. Like David would die bittersweet. He could look at the Lord and go, yeah, you're faithful and all that and I want to thank you for that and I'm so thankful that's where I get to go. But it grieves me to look at my family and realize that I'm leaving this. This is what I'm leaving. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that with you and I don't want to do that with my own literal children, if you will, the ones who bear my surname. I want to see God's fruit born out in my life and in your life. And I want to see the kind of fruit that doesn't get trimmed off because we've decided instead to pursue the riptide of sin. But on the other side of that, if that's what we forsake and leave behind, then God knows how to bring something new and fresh. Aren't you thankful? Would you pray with me? God, we so need you in the murky parts of our heart that would read a chapter like this and feel righteous indignation because of your forgiveness. Instead of celebrating the forgiveness we've received because clearly you've forgiven us too. Or the part that would use freedom as an opportunity for vice instead of through love serving one another. We've been set free not to sin, but set free to serve. And we don't want to look at these kind of things. And Well, we don't want to look at these kind of things and have our heart go, see, we can do that, because what that shows is that our heart is not in love with you like we claim it is. And the moment we start asking exactly how much of this can I do and still not get divorced? How much of this with you? How much of this can I do and still not have a horrible relationship with you? How much of this can I do? Well, well, it's clear where I am the door instead of the person who lives at the house. Forgive us for that libertine heart. And forgive us for the part of us that looks at others and sees their sin is so huge. 
and then flips the monocle on our on herself and sees that the same sin is tiny and insignificant in comparison. So God, I just pray right now for every one of us in this room, we get right with you tonight. And if there be any right now that we've been sticking our foot in and our toe into the, the, the riptide and we're saying, see, I don't feel its pull yet, so I guess I'm okay to take a step in or another step in, not realizing with every step that we're running out of land to stand on and with every step we're getting, it's getting easier and easier to get dragged away. And those great things that you're doing in our life, the relationships you are healing and the, and the parts of our life that we're starting to thrive start to shrivel again. Because your life and walking away from it and just trying to take you in doses is so... Well, it's like treating you like food instead of air. But we can't fast from breathing, Lord. And we need you. We need you to rip open our hearts and purge from our hearts the legalist and the libertine to where we would crave to obey. And praise you for your forgiveness when we don't. Thank you for paying for all of our sins on the cross through Jesus. And thank you for raising him from the dead to give us new life. And the child that died was replaced by a child that you say is beloved of you. And I know you loved the first child. But that child wasn't going to thrive. And in the same way, you let within us the old man die and raise up one that lives beloved in you. Where we have been negligent in the battle, hesitant to the warfare, reluctant to step where you are calling us to step, Forgive us. And thank you that you reinvite us to the battle. And if we don't step in, somebody else will have the privilege of that victory. But we'll have no claim to it. And we want to follow you to see victory after victory. And for that, we must step. So forgive us where we've stepped wrong. And forgive us for where we've not stepped right. And as you wash us and purge us from that, lead us now into the new life where the old habits, sins, lifestyles become foreign to us. And where the new land of fruitfulness becomes the norm in Jesus name Amen